Father, we ask that uh, in the next few moments as we open up your word, that you would speak to us, Lord, that you would um, make clear to us, Lord, what all of this is about, what all of life is about, what Easter celebrates, what Paul's Sunday begins, Lord. We ask that you would um, help us to help our hearts to kind of push past the religious jargon and get to grasping uh, the truth of the good news. And we need your help to do that. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, Today's Palm Sunday, and as we're approaching Easter, I'm hoping that it's on your radar to think about people that you're going to invite, either to Good Friday service here on Friday at 7 o'clock or Easter service, same time. Um, People tend to be a little more... uh, apt to go to church on Easter. Um, Christmas and Easter are those services where they'll kind of at least do you the favor and show up. So it's, it's, the, the iron is hot to strike and ask, hey, you know, we're having Easter service. I don't know if you found a place yet or if you know where you're going yet. Come on out. As you engage in those conversations, and, and hopefully it's a little bit more than once a year inviting someone to Easter, but engaging in conversations with people, trying to find out where they are in their faith. You're going to get questions. Sometimes those questions are honest, honest questions that are heartfelt by the person. Sometimes they're just questions that they've heard some professor say and they're just parroting it to you. Sometimes those questions are just ways to sort of deflect your invitation to go to church or try to just stop their conversation stoppers. These are questions that they feel uh, Christians, you know, will get kind of frazzled and, okay, never mind, I'll leave you alone, that kind of thing. One of those uh, questions that comes up the most goes something like this. How is it possible that someone can lead a good life, be a good person, do nice things, but because they don't worship Jesus, they don't choose Jesus, maybe they worship another God, they don't choose Jesus, they're eternally separated, they go to hell, they suffer, they're tormented. At the other side of the coin, someone who lives a bad life, does evil things, is a horrible person, is a dictator, a despot, a murderer, a rapist, you name it. On their deathbed, that person can turn to Jesus and all that just gets wiped away. The good person separated from God and the bad person because he chose Jesus in the last minute, few seconds of his life, he, he gets to go to heaven? How is that possible? You see, it's hard for their minds to wrap around that truth. Is that the truth? We have a clip. I want you to uh, hear how Sam Harris puts it. Now, Sam Harris is one of the leading voices for atheism. He goes around college campuses debating uh, people. He's, he's very well-spoken. He's got a kind of a smooth demeanor. Uh, he's written a book called The End of Faith. And this is a debate where he faces off with William Lane Craig. William Lane Craig is one of the leading defenders of the Christian faith. And in this clip, you're going to hear, it's a short clip, you're going to hear how Sam Harris poses the question that I just told you you're going to get asked when you talk to people about the gospel. Let's hear how Sam Harris puts it. The revelation. 
Okay, there, there are 1.2 billion people in India at this moment. Most of them are Hindus, most of them therefore polytheists. Okay, in Dr. Craig's universe, no matter how good these people are, they are doomed. If you are, if you are praying to the monkey god Hanuman, you are doomed. You will be tortured in hell for eternity. Now, is there the slightest evidence for this? No. It just says so in Mark 9 and Matthew 13 and Revelation 14. Okay, perhaps you'll remember from the Lord of the Rings, it says when the elves die, they go to Valinor, but they can be reborn in Middle-earth. Okay, I say that just as a point of comparison. Okay, so God created the cultural isolation of the Hindus, Okay. He engineered the circumstance of their deaths in ignorance of revelation. And then he created the penalty for this ignorance, which is an eternity of conscious torment in fire. Okay. On the other hand, on Dr. Craig's account, your run-of-the-mill serial killer in America, okay, who, who spent his life raping and torturing children, need only come to God, come to Jesus on death row, and after a final meal of fried chicken, he's going to spend an eternity in heaven after death. Okay. One thing should be crystal clear to you. This vision of life has absolutely nothing to do with moral accountability. Okay. So this is uh, at Notre Dame. This is a professional debate. Um, I wish I had time to unpack for you just in that clip how many you know, fallacious arguments he made, non sequiturs, things that don't follow. Um, but this is common with the atheist arguments. They, they slip in jokes, the little thing about Lord of the Rings. It doesn't make any sense, but it gets a laugh, and you get the crowd on your side. So this is, this is typical of the debates when you watch it. But the question is a valid one in the sense that this is a question that everyone has to come to grips with. Is that is that the message of Christianity? That someone can live a really bad life and, in, and at the very end not do any penance, not fix any of those wrongs, not go back and live a good life or try to outweigh it, just, just puts faith in Christ and is saved. And then conversely, someone who does good things, doesn't do really evil things, is your nice neighbor, mows your lawn when you're away, goes to hell. How do we respond to that? And so to cut to the chase, we've got to get to what the gospel is. The gospel is gritty. The gospel is a little bit ugly. It ends beautiful, but it's, it's, it's not a rated G message. And I want to take you to this passage in Matthew that talks about what Jesus had to do to make the gospel a reality. What we're going to see is that someone, someone had to deserve the best, but get the worst, in order for those that deserve the worst to get the best. Somebody had to have the right to life, but instead get death, so that those who should die are given the right to life. Somebody had to deserve joy, but be given wrath so that those who deserve wrath can be given joy. And that's what we're going to see in Matthew chapter 27. Turn with me there to Matthew chapter 27. 
Today's Palm Sunday, but we're a little bit ahead of that in our passage because that's how we lined it up so that we'll be queued up for Easter. But you remember when uh, the original Palm Sunday, when Jesus entered, people claimed Hosanna, meaning Lord save us. They didn't really know what they were saying when they said that. What kind of Savior do they want? They want a political Savior. He's a different kind of Savior. Jesus is the kind of Savior that deserves life, instead gets death, so that those who deserve death instead get life. That's how Jesus is going to save. And what I want you to notice in this passage, and for some of us this is very familiar, for some of us we've not read this in a long time, but we're going to walk through it today. I want you to realize the wrath that Jesus endured. I want you to take note that Jesus didn't just get a swift execution. I mean, why couldn't it just be a beheading? But even a drowning would have been faster. He'd be dead in a minute or two. Why this wrath? I want you to look at this. Let's start in verse 27. The levels of pain that he endured. The kind of wrath that Jesus suffered. Aaron shared with us last week that uh, they gave up, uh, they released Barabbas so that Jesus can be taken. Again, the replacement. Barabbas deserved punishment. He gets life. Jesus deserves life. He gets punishment. Then we get into verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. That's kind of ironic. One man that already said, why do you come to me with clubs? A battalion is made up of 600 soldiers. The whole battalion is before him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Now, some of us may think mockery is a light form of punishment. But remember, you thought that next time somebody mocks you. And you get all irate. You don't know what to do. They're almost you'd rather somebody kick you in the shins than, than mock you. And so here they are, they're, they're mocking him. You're a king. Hail, king of the Jews. They're kneeling. But that wasn't enough. Verse 30, they spit on him. And they took the reed that they put in his hand and they struck him on his head, remembering that his head was wearing the crown of thorns. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on and led him away to crucify him. Now, none of that was necessary. None of that was part of the execution. They should have just gone straight away and and lead him away. But he's in the hands of, of gritty, nasty soldiers. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. At this point, this is the cross beam to which Jesus' hands would be nailed. And Jesus carried it for some distance. And at some point, they just wanted to get this done. So they had this man come in and carry the cross beam. Verse 33, And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. And when he tasted it, He would not drink it. So here's a man that's thirsty, he's parched, he's bleeding out, and they pretend like they're going to give him drink, so he goes to taste it. Ha, just kidding, it's nasty. 
just another form of torture. Verse 35, and when they had crucified him, now Matthew doesn't go into and they laid him out, they pulled out the nails, here's where they, they pierced the hand. He doesn't go into all that because everybody knew what crucifixion was. We have a hard time with it because we wear the gold necklaces, we've got bumper stickers of it, we've got tribal crosses, you know, frilly crosses embroidered on our pillows, and I'm not saying those are wrong, but sometimes we have such a sanitized view of it, we have to remind ourselves what crucifixion was. But the reason why Matthew doesn't go into it is because it, that it was a commonly known form of execution. So he kind of skips those details and gives you the extra details that were completely, these kind of things are unheard of. The mockery, the stripping his clothes, all this stuff. And let's not forget that he's already been whipped. Uh, Aaron explained some of that for us, that the, this cord of, a whip of cords with pieces of bone, metal, uh, pottery shards kind of embedded into the the whip cords would latch onto the back and and peel flesh, muscle, skin off of his back. Now normally that would happen before crucifixion, but Pilate fast-forwarded that and brought it earlier because he was trying to convince them to just let him go with the whipping. So he's been whipped. They put a robe on top of that bloody back, and they pull the robe off of that bloody back, and they pull another one on, and they take that one off and put the other one back on. Then they drag him, and in verse 35, they crucified him. They divided his garments among them by casting lots. I wish I had time to go into how many of these verses fulfill Old Testament Scripture, but that's one of them. Verse 36, then they sat down and kept watch over him there. Just in case someone wants to come and steal him, just in case his disciples band together and try to get Jesus down off the cross, anything, let's just keep watch here. This is a high-profile execution. Over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. You remember that there was a point where Jesus said, this temple is going to go down and I'm going to rebuild it in three days. Uh, But he was referring to his body being rebuilt in three days, not the temple. They said, oh, you want to destroy the temple? By the way, he didn't say, I'm going to destroy the temple. But again, they... They twist his words. They put words in his mouth. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So all the chief priests with the scribes and elders, these are the guys that teach Scripture, memorize Scripture, understand the promise of the coming Messiah. All of the things that are going to be filled with the Messiah being fulfilled before them and they're blind to it. These are the protectors of the law, the, the readers and teachers of Scripture. And they're crucifying the one that Scripture is about. It wasn't enough for the man to be hanging there off of nails, moving up and down the cross with his fleshless back, trying to get breath. They had to stand there and mock him. Saying, verse 42, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let Him come down now from the cross and we will believe in Him. Get off the cross now. We'll believe you. Multiply bread. We won't believe you. Walk on water. We won't believe you. Heal people that have been lame 
since they were born, we won't believe you. Tell Lazarus to come out of his tomb and have him walk around after being completely dead and we won't believe you. You, you know if Jesus did come off the cross right there, they'd go, oh, 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 put him back up there. You didn't put the nails tight enough. It's going to be something. They just won't believe. They stand there. They mock. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in this way. Remember, one of the thieves turned and gave his life to Jesus at the last minute, but that was at the last minute. Up until that minute, he mocked just like the other one did. They both mocked Jesus. And as we're reading this, we're, we're looking at this and we're going, why so much pain? Why all of that? I mean, he had to die, but why did he have to die like that? Why all of the punching and the spitting? We saw punching earlier and blindfolding him and punching him and asking him to prophesy who punched him. Um, spitting in his face. From other accounts, we get that his, his, um, from another passage that his beard was plucked. Skin whipped off of his back. I mean, all of this happening to Jesus. And the reason why is so that when somebody lives an evil life and rightly deserves wrath, they don't deserve a slap on the wrist. They deserve wrath. They killed people. They murdered people. They, whatever they did. They deserve what? What could you write up if you hate it? Just there was somebody that you thought, oh my goodness, this person deserves so much punishment. Well, write a punishment up. Should he be punched? Should he be mocked? Should the skin be stripped off of him? Should nails go through his hands? Should he be hung up on a tree? Should everyone laugh at him? Should his most beloved people abandon him? Except for the women. The ones that said, I'll die for you are nowhere to be found. So he should be betrayed. He should be, think of the worst person you can think of and what they would deserve and write it out and then hold it up to Matthew 27. This is how it is possible for someone to live an evil life and at the last minute experience the exchange because Jesus paid it. I want you to look at some verses because this passage doesn't tell us explicitly that the reason why Jesus is doing this is to fix the sin problem. But Matthew has already made that clear. We're going to look at a couple of verses. Matthew chapter 1, the prophecy, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus means Savior, Deliverer. You're going to name him that because he's going to save people from their sins. That's why he's being born. Matthew 26. Or Matthew 20. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. You ever watch a movie and the kidnapper asking for a ransom? And they're going to do a ransom drop? There's going to be an exchange, right? The bag of money for the kid that was kidnapped. There's an exchange there. Well, that's why Jesus came. For that exchange. Barabbas for Jesus. Each of us being Barabbas. Matthew 26. 
This is where he's instituting the Lord's Supper, communion, when we take communion. This is what we read. Jesus tells his disciples, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Why is Jesus' blood poured out? Why is Jesus going through suffering? Why is he bleeding? So sins can be forgiven. And there's no cap put on it. He doesn't say so that some sins can be forgiven, so that light sins can be forgiven. So that sins that only deserve mild punishment can be forgiven. Sins that deserve the most wrathful punishment imaginable by man, which the Romans perfected in the crucifixion, so that it can match what anyone deserves. There's another familiar verse in Isaiah 53. He was wounded. Why was he wounded? Why wasn't he just, why, why couldn't they just end it quickly? Surely they knew how to end people's lives quickly with a sword, with some, a, a guillotine, something. And he was wounded for our transgressions. Why was he crushed? Why was it so brutal? Our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace. In other words, we get peace, he gets punishment. Although we deserve punishment and he's the prince of peace, we get what he deserved and he, get what, he got what we deserved. Punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And with his stripes, referencing the whipping, so not the final execution, but even the torture, how brutal it was, was so that we can be healed. So if we think, why does, why does Jesus experience so torturous? It's because Jesus had to reach down deep so that he could save the worst of us. It's not that every single one of us deserves to be whipped like that. It's that even if you deserve to be whipped like that, you can be covered in Christ. Even if you deserve to be punched, even if you deserve to be mocked, Jesus' punishment covers that. That is why he couldn't just experience a quick, painless death. He had to be crushed. He had to bear the punishment of the full brunt of the worst iniquities so that even the worst sinner can be covered. So Jesus, excuse me, Jesus experiences this. And it's just, no matter how many times you read it, you, you slow down and you look at it, and it's just uh, horrific. Um, let's pick up in verse 45. It says, now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So now supernatural things begin to happen. You know, some people say, oh, that was an eclipse. That's a short eclipse. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is... Aramaic for my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But some of the bystanders hearing it thought he was calling Elijah. They said, this man is calling Elijah. Now, Elijah didn't experience death like a normal person. Remember, he was caught up in a whirlwind and, and translated you know, to God's presence. So he didn't experience death. So there was a Jewish tradition that he could serve as a messianic figure and come and help in the time of need. So they think he's calling on Elijah. And they use this again as an opportunity to make fun. 
48, verse 48, and one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Sour wine doesn't really sound good to us, but from what I understand, commentators that I read, that was a common drink to help quench thirst. And somebody at this point wanted to help, and they said, no, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. Let's just see if Elijah saves him first. In verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. If we put this side by side with the other synoptic gospels, we understand that his loud cry was, it is finished. But Matthew wants to focus on the fact that Jesus was in pain. Matthew's depiction is uh, more, um, it has a much more gory uh, detailing to it than John or Luke that emphasize other things. Matthew wants to emphasize how difficult this was for Jesus to experience. And he yells out a loud cry and yields up his spirit. He lets go, embraces death. And so in this torture and in this death, Jesus endures the worst wrath So that he can block the worst wrath. Jesus endures the harshest of punishments so that even if somebody deserves the harshest punishment, it can be blocked. Jesus becomes the refuge. Jesus becomes the hiding place. He's the one to tuck under so that when the storm of God's wrath sweeps across humanity, it doesn't affect you. Why? Because you didn't do as bad as other people? No. But it's because Jesus endured it already. And so when we look at this, we're reminded that uh, the gospel has everything to do with wrath. The gospel has everything to do with punishment, uh, the deserving of death. It's ugly. It's not an easy message. It's not a pretty message. But if you don't bring it up, they'll bring it up. They're going to ask you, how can somebody that's, that's good deserves death and somebody that, you know, uh, that definitely does deserve death, can have life. How is that possible? That is a golden opportunity to go right to the cross. Because if you understand the cross, then you understand that. Now they might say that's foolishness, and you can join Paul and say, well, the, the gospel is foolishness to people. This is why the, the Spirit has to give, do something inside of you for you to get it, to wrap your mind around that. For someone to understand that We deserve death all across the board. We deserve wrath. They have to understand that so that they can understand how somebody that they think definitely does deserve wrath can possibly be saved. And what's amazing about this is that Matthew gives us some details to assure us that this is once and for all payment. This isn't a questionable uh, covering. There's assurance here. But what if I did really, really bad things? Read chapter 27 again. Do you deserve what Jesus got? Even if your answer is yes, I deserve everything that happened to Jesus should happen to me. Even if that's the case, it happened to him when he didn't deserve it. Therefore, God can transfer the count to someone else who doesn't deserve it the other way. Jesus deserves life. He gets death. We deserve death. We're transferred life because we're given the righteousness that Jesus earned. Now look at these passages, the last few verses in this paragraph here that I want to look at. Uh, beginning in verse 51. 
behold, the curtain of the temple, you know, the temple where the Old Testament saints would come and give their sacrifices, bring their sacrifices so that they wouldn't die. And these sacrifices would keep them in right standing before God, right? The curtain would separate the normal people from the holy place. And only the high priest can go in there, and he had to go in there very carefully. If he went in there with sin that was uncovered, he would die. That curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. All right, so the sky is covered in darkness. There's an earthquake. Rocks are shattered. The curtain temple is torn in half from top to bottom like God did it. And then verse 52, the tombs also were opened. Now we're going to pause there a second. So there's part of the earthquake. Rocks are splitting. That huge 60 foot by 30 foot wide, by the way, curtain. It's not like, you know, your shower curtain. This huge thing is torn completely in half from top to bottom. Signifying that everything that Jesus said about the temple is going to happen. Jesus said this temple is going to be destroyed and already the curtain's torn and now they're biting their nails. But even deeper is why Jesus said that the temple is not necessary anymore because he's the temple. And so Jesus is replacing the need for us to have little lambs that are spotless and then you kill them and you put them on an altar and it's a bloody mess and all the while back in your mind you're going, can a lamb really cover what I did? If a man did the sin, why should a lamb get the pain? Oh well, this is what God said. It's just like a band-aid. It's just like a holding pattern that is a picture of the real fix. And the real fix is that a man has to pay for man's penalty and that man is Jesus Christ. But it has to be a perfect man for the account switch to take place. So the temple is torn in two. Uh, the temple curtain is torn in two, signifying the no more need for sacrifices. No more need for continually getting saved again and again. If you've ever grown up in a church where you come down to the altar every Sunday to get saved again, I would like you to read this passage and then go to Hebrews and understand what really happened here. There's no need for a sacrifice to happen again and again and again. The payment is once. You place faith in it or you don't, but the payment is one time. And then this is crazy because we just skip by this so quick. We skip by this so quickly. Verse 52, remember the tombs were open when that earthquake happened? After Jesus rose again, he wasn't the only one that rose again. It says, the tombs also were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, so these are Old Testament saints, were raised. Their bodies were raised, so they're not ghosts, kind of like apparitions. They're people walking when they, you know, they walked around. They came out of those open tombs. And 53, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, I, I, don't, know what, I don't know what to do with this really. Here's my best guess. Matthew doesn't give us a lot of details. We have a lot of questions, right? Did they have the same powers that Jesus had? Because Jesus didn't need the tomb to be opened. Jesus went right through the rock. They opened the tomb so that they could see that he was not there. They're in a, a, a room with the door shut and Jesus just appears. And he's, what's up guys? You know? I don't know if they had that glorified kind of body or if they had like Lazarus, which is sort of a regenerated body, but like what we had. So, you know, Lazarus still had to walk around and sit and, you know, he couldn't travel fast or anything weird like that. We're not sure. Which saints? Like the heroes of the Old Testament? Like was, was like Elisha there or like Moses, Aaron? We don't know. 
Matthew just drops a line. Thanks, Matthew. It's like watching a movie, and it's like an awesome thing, and then the, cre- the credits roll, and you're like, whoa, 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 what? There's a sequel to this, right? No, no, that's, they just wanted you to leave the theater frustrated, you know? Why did you do that, Matthew? That's crazy. Verse 52 and 53 are nuts, right? I think Matthew doesn't want us to get distracted from what he's getting at. And what he's getting at is how effective Christ's payment was. It was effective enough to to not need the temple anymore. And it was effective enough that all those Old Testament saints that needed the temple, they're covered. So his sacrifice goes backwards to those who had faith looking forward to him and goes forward to all those who will come and have faith looking back to what he did. It covers. And he goes right on with his details. Verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Now all this time, all this mocking, Oh, the Son of God, if you're the Son of God, do this. If you're the Son of God, do that. After he gives up his last breath and there's an earthquake, the sky is dark. These Roman guards, some of them probably the one, overlap with the ones that beat him, mocked him, suddenly realize, oh, that's not a normal dude. And so what Matthew is trying to get at is, man, Jesus, he went through this pain, he went through the suffering so that it can be assured that whether you lived in Old Testament times or New Testament times, if you place your faith in Christ, your sin will be dealt with. But what if your sin is really, really, really bad? Really, really, really bad. Look at what he went through. Even if what you did deserve that, it's covered. And that's the beauty of the gospel. What's ironic is what Sam Harris and others try to picture as something ugly about Christianity is the very beauty of Christianity. When, when Sam says somebody who's good, it doesn't matter if they live in India or live in the Bronx, New York. Who's really good? If you, uh, I encourage you to watch that whole debate, and this is where William Lane Craig challenges him. How do you even define what's good if you're an atheist? What is the, what is the basis for what's good? So Sam Harris wants to say, well, this person is good. How do you know that person's good? Jesus made it clear, no one's good. None of us are good. William Lane Craig isn't. Sam Harris isn't. I'm not. You're not. None of us are good enough. So we need a covering. And the good news is good because no matter what we've done, the covering is effective. There is assurance there. And so what does that leave us with? What does that leave us with? Um, Leaves us with this. I want you to leave here confident if you know christ and someone ever tells you how do you know you're going to get to heaven how you, do you know for sure you're going to heaven and you say yes and they say well, that's arrogant you're, you're arrogant for thinking you can be sure in fact you might engage with some people that are very steeped in, in um, catholic theology and they'll argue with you this on with you on this point and they'll say how can you just you give your life to jesus and that's it you don't have to add works to it that's so arrogant No, you're arrogant because you think you can get 50% Jesus and you can fill up the other 50%? You can fill up the other 50%? 
or Jesus did 90% and you can perform the other 10%? That's arrogant. I can't do it. I can only come to the Father because Jesus paid 100%. That's the only way I can have access to the Father. That's not arrogant. That's full confidence in what Jesus has done. And that's why Jesus gets all the glory, all the praise, all the honor, and will be worshipped eternally as the perfect Lamb because He took my place. We don't share that glory. He gets it. This also means when you go out and talk to people, don't just talk to people that you think kind of already like Christian-like. I'm going to evangelize this person because he's really nice. All he has to do is just say he's a believer and he's already on his way. He already is nice. We should be, we should be confident enough to visit people on, in jail and the worst of them all and give them the gospel the same way we would give the nice person that you know, shares your office space with you. Because it, it, it's not based on what we've done. It's based on what Christ has done. Finally, when people ask this kind of question, how is it possible that somebody can live a good life but not know Christ and go to hell and someone can live a bad life and at the last minute give their life to Christ and go to heaven? Answer. The cross of Jesus Christ. That's how it's possible.